If you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory and we'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor and poet, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales and master detective novels. And I'm Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for and about women. On today's episode, Valerie pitched Nashville so that we can study plot structure. This 1975 film was directed by Robert Altman from an original screenplay by Joan Tewksbury. Of course, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And we'd really love it if you could give us a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Simply go to the show's landing page, scroll to the bottom and tick a star rating. It's that simple. All right, Valerie, I'm a bit nervous about this one this week. <laughs> what have you got for the genres of this for this story? Well, you have every right to be a bit nervous this week. <laughs> it's a wild ride this week, everyone. Strap in. All right, the global genre. Here's my story, and I'm sticking to it. It is not possible to identify one global genre for a multi-plot story. And I'm going to talk about why that is in a minute. So there. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> okay, so Nashville is a bit of a different beast because it is multi-plot. So, Melanie, I'm really curious. I thought about you all week. I, I thought, what have I done to Melanie? <laughs> How... What was your experience like? Well, I really, I, I thought it was fascinating, but I felt very, it was very hard for me to understand what was going on in this movie. And I really felt like I just didn't get it. I just didn't get it. And I felt so dumb this week watching this movie. And, you know, I could, I could see what was going on. I could, I could see what was happening, but I just could not understand what was happening or why it was happening I think is probably the best description of of how I felt watching this um and it really caused me a lot of problems because on one side I could see what was going on and the other side I just couldn't understand it it had no I, I had nothing that I could refer to to kind of help me and even when I did do some research on it that didn't help me much either so what about <laughs> what about you uh, yes, ditto to everything you just said. I've been thinking about why I was scratching my head so much about this one this week. And I have a couple of ideas. One, I have said many times that arc plot is what we think of when we think of story. So when we go to, to sit down and watch a movie or read a book, in our mind, we're getting an arc plot structure. That's what readers are expecting. And this is really not that. It's like when we did Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yeah, yeah. And we watched it and went, whoa, what do, what do we do with this? Yes. It's yeah. the, kind of the same feeling. It's like, okay, oh, oh I, need, I need time to let this sink in. So that's one reason why I think it was tripping us both up. 
Another reason is that neither one of us is American. And this is very much a statement on American culture. So there's cultural references we're just not going to get. Yeah. It's also a movie from 1975. I was four, you were three. Yes. <laughs> and I also, although I've been to Nashville, I am not entrenched in the country music world enough to really get all the nuance. So there was, there's a lot of reasons why I, I felt like I was watching this movie this week with kind of one arm tied behind my back and a blindfold on. You're right in that you come in and what you expect, I think, is an arc plot story. And so there's a level of A, expectation, but B, resonance that you're expecting in the structure of the story. And when you don't get it, it does puzzle you a great deal. And I remember feeling that way very much when we were watching Three Billboards. But there was still a level of narrative in that story. I did not get that sense of narrative in this in Nashville. And I I thought about other multi-plot stories that as well, like um, uh, He's Just Not That Into You, um, those sorts of movies, um, and Love Actually. And they made more sense to me than this one. And I think you're going to, and you and I spoke quickly before the show, and hopefully you're going to go into some of the reasons why this Nashville is different from even some of the more commercially um, recent multi-plot movies. But um, I'm glad I'm not alone in it. And it it wasn't just me that felt really out to sea watching this movie. Well, I think with uh, like Love Actually and the uh, Leanne Moriarty books sort of popped into my head, while they may be multi-plot, they they simply aren't operating at the same scope as Nashville. So I think that we can wrap our heads more easily around Love Actually, which is, I don't know, what, a half dozen storylines? I'm not sure. Um, There's 24 in Nashville. All (laughs) righty. Do you remember way back in episode one of this season, you said, Valerie, I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about multiplot. Well, lady, here it comes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm regretting those words now. Multiplot is not like anything else I've ever studied, that's for sure. Certainly not at this scale. And this is not for the faint of heart. So all of the films that I have chosen this season come from Robert McKee's story. These are the films that he has given as good examples of the different plot types that he's teaching in that book. Now, I admit, I'd never heard of Nashville, the movie, uh, but the following passage from story is what made me choose it. And this is from page 56, quote, multiplot films are less than classical and more than minimal. The world of Robert Altman, a master of this form, spans a spectrum of possibilities. A multiplot work may be hard, which means trending toward arc plot, as individual stories turn frequently with strong external consequences, and Nashville is an example of that. Or they can be soft, leaning toward mini-plot, as plot lines slow their pace and action becomes internalized. And he gives three women as an example. Now, I could have chosen either Nashville or three three women, uh, but since Nashville tends toward arc plot, I thought it might be the easier one to talk about. (laughs) 
Ah, uh, and it might very well be. I haven't seen Three Women yet, but it's on my list. Uh, in fact, I will be in my own personal study looking at all of the films that uh, Robert McKee is referencing in story, just so I can understand as fully as possible the, his story triangle concept. Uh, as a reminder, I'm studying plot structure as articulated in Robert McKee's story, and I am using supporting material from the story grid when applicable. Why am I using these two books? Because I don't know of any others that get into this topic, but they could exist. So for anyone listening, if you have come across another reference book that's talking about plot structure, please let me know. Uh, you can reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis, because I really do want to dive in and check those out. Okay, so McKee's concept is the story triangle. So picture in your mind a triangle. He puts the three main forms of plot structure, which are arc plot, mini plot, antiplot, in each of the triangle's three corners. And he says that the sides are like a sliding scale between each of the corners. So for example, there are some stories like Men in Black, which are pure arc plot. Other stories like The Accidental Tourist are pure mini plot. But there are plenty of stories that are somewhere in between. You know, they lean more heavily toward one end of the spectrum or the other. The stories that fall somewhere between mini plot and arc plot are what McKee calls multi-plot. And as I, we said a few minutes ago, Nashville is the kind of multi-plot story that leans toward arc plot. Three Women is a multi-plot story that leans toward mini-plot. Now, before I can really get into the analysis of Nashville, I want to explain a little bit about what a multi-plot story is. So here goes. Again, this is all from McKee. This is a quote from page 49. If the writer splinters the film or story into a number of relatively small subplot-sized stories, each with a separate protagonist, the result minimizes the roller coaster dynamic of the arc plot and creates the multi-plot variation of mini-plot that's grown in popularity since the 1980s. All right, groovy. What the heck does that mean? Well, let's dig in a little deeper. <laughs> Even in multi-plot stories that have external conflict because they're leaning more toward the arc plot structure, because so many storylines are drawing the reader or the viewer, in the case of film, in so many different directions, and because each of the storyline is, is presented very briefly, they're kind of watered down. And that makes logical sense if you think about, about it, because if you've got a film that's, you know, two hours, that's pretty standard for a movie, or a book that's about 80,000 words, you can take one storyline with one protagonist and get into it in some detail in 80,000 words. But if you've got six protagonists and six storylines, you still need to keep the overall book around 80,000 words. So you just don't have as much room to develop the story. Now, McKee says that a multi-plot story has a number of subplot size storylines. But he also is very clear to explain that multiplot is not the same as subplot. Here's the distinction, and it's an important one. Subplots serve to enhance the storytelling 
of the central plot in some way. And if you go to a story, Mickey has a whole list of ways that subplots enhance a central plot. On the other hand, a multi-plot story never develops a central plot. Instead, they weave together a bunch of smaller storylines that as a whole creates a film or a book. So this is why we can't pick a genre for Nashville, because there's no central storyline to attach a genre to. What we would have to do is somehow untangle all of the storylines, and, and I really do mean untangle, because they are, whew, they're really woven together well. Like I just cannot imagine the storyboard that they had trying to put this thing together. But what Melanie and I would have to do is pull apart every one of the storylines and give each storyline its own genre. That's the only way that I can think of to tackle genre when it comes to a multiplot story as complex as Nashville. Now, before you think that a multiplot story is going to let you off the hook and, <laughs> and that you're going to write outside genre or you're not going to have a central plot to your book, I mean, you can certainly if you want, but I just want you to know what it is that you are asking of yourself so that you can cut yourself some slack and be kind to yourself and not pull your hair out and think that it's, it's you and that you can't do it for some reason. The reason I'm saying this is because writing a multiplot, to do it properly, that is, it's much more difficult because you've got to know everything there is to know about all of the genres and all of the storylines that you're developing so that you can represent them in a way that the reader can follow. In fact, the degree of writing difficulty increases with a multiplot story. It doesn't decrease. Remember what I said way back, I think probably in the first episode. Robert McKee calls the arc plot story form the classic story form because it's what we think of when we think of story. And it's also the form that all of the other plot forms come from. So if you don't already know how to pull off a really great arc plot, then doing a multi-plot or a mini-plot or an anti-plot or a quasi-anti-plot or anything else is going to be a lot harder because you're skipping the first step. <laughs> and the first step's a doozy. All right, so if there's no central plot in a multi-plot story, then how on earth is the writer supposed to pull this thing off? Well, instead of a central plot to keep a story together, the multi-plot story has a central idea. Each of the storylines is a variation of that idea or that theme. To quote Robert McKee, multi-plot frames an image of a particular society but weaves small stories around an idea so that these group of photos vibrate with energy. Now, everything I've said so far is coming from McKee, but I did consult the story grid to see what it has to say about multiplot because honestly, I couldn't remember reading anything about it when I was studying that method. And it turns out that I couldn't remember it because it isn't referenced in the book. <laughs> um, so Sean Coyne seems to lump McKee's concept of multiplot in with his version of miniplot. He does say that miniplot often has multiple protagonists, but that's not the same as multiplot in my mind. Both of them reference uh, Robert Altman's shortcuts, but McKee says it's an example of multiplot and Coyne says it's miniplot. I haven't watched it. 
I would have to sort of read everything that both of them has to say. I'd have to watch shortcuts myself to really fully understand it. I just have a question for you then, noting what you've said. So we know there are lots of characters in this movie and we know that it's a long time, but there's an awful lot of singing in this movie as well. And I thought that the singing, while it's it's kind of it's in Nashville and it's country music and that makes sense. It to me the it didn't relate or add to the story or any of the multi plots. So first, my first question is, what did you think about that? Did that add to or or help with that multi plot storyline? I think it did. And there's one story. Uh, it don't worry me, but that actually shows up a number of times in the movie and different characters sing it at different times. And it, I can't, I can't stop using the word resonate now. (laughs) It, 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 it carries weight Hmm. at that point in the movie. But I think that the, the songs that are being sung, they support the characters and they support what's happening in the story at that moment. And some stories like it don't worry me, sort of floating throughout the whole thing. Well, you know, all the stuff that's happening should probably be worrying all of them <laughs> given the the way the movie ends. Because the the numbers of characters in this movie is so um big or the cast. How and you know, we've seen it this in other formats and we can see that there's an arc for the characters. There's not I didn't think there is many arcs in this in this film to be able to analyze individual storylines enough whereas i could see that in other multi-plot plot stories so when i think about what you said what mckee's analysis is that's not quite gelling for me do you know and i don't necessarily see it in or i didn't see it in nashville either so you obviously could because you know that's what you're focusing on Can you unpack that a little bit more for me? I think it's the sheer volume of stories. So if you look at something like Love Actually, even though there's a number of storylines in that film, there's not as many. So by default, each of them has a little more time to breathe and develop. In Nashville, even though it's a longer movie, there's 24 main characters with their storylines that are all intersecting and touching and weaving and bobbing around. Even at two hours, 40 minutes, the best it can do is give us a snapshot of the characters as opposed to giving us a story where a character arcs. Does that help answer your question? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And when I was watching it, I felt like... um, one of the things I was trying to do to make sense of it was that, so say if I suddenly met up with a friend and we've gone somewhere with a group of her friends that I've not met before and I'm with them for five days and I'm meeting all these new people and I'm getting flashpoints or snippets of their history and their lives together, that's somehow how the movie felt to me. Like it was sitting there watching things happen with all these interconnected people but not actually being part of it. So, you you know, and you in a five-day period, if you're in that situation, you don't get everybody's background, you don't get a true sense of who they are. So I think that makes sense, if especially if there's so many 
people that you're meeting for the first time, which is sort of what happens in this movie too, right? You meet these characters for the first time. You only have a small amount of time to understand them or try to understand them. And a lot of times you're left feeling a bit um, unfulfilled or it's the story, their stories or how they relate to you is incomplete. Does that make sense in terms of how a way to try and look at this particular multiplot story? Yeah, we're meeting a lot of new friends all at once, but they come from a different time and a different place. All right. This is all very interesting, but how does it apply to Nashville? Let's let's see where the rubber hits the road here. Now, as this is not going to come as a surprise to you, this movie has layers after layers after layers, and I could have spent weeks or maybe even months trying to pull it all apart, uh, but I didn't have that time. And I don't think it's necessary to do that in order to understand multiplot. Okay, so the blurb for the movie describes it this way. A political parable, a musical and docudrama about the Nashville scene, Altman's award-winning film tells interlocking stories of love and yet is a wicked satire of American society. So as we've already said, Melanie and I are both approaching this at a disadvantage. And this is where story theory saves us, in my opinion. This is a really valuable skill for all of us to develop, this knowledge of story theory, because it takes the subjectivity out of it, which is really important, especially if we're trying to improve our own writing, you know, and we're completely subjective about our own writing. So if we can somehow set that aside and look at our work objectively and improve it, all the better. So on a subjective level, I don't fully appreciate everything that's happening for all the reasons we've already talked about, but objectively, I am in awe of Robert Altman's ability to weave this many storylines together. It, it genuinely does boggle my mind. So by my count, there are 22 major characters, all with their own storylines, and of course, some are bigger than others, and there are, then there are these two other characters kind of hanging out on the periphery. Now, these aren't separate parallel storylines. These are not silos. These are storylines that all touch one another and interlock with one another. It's a very tangled web. I tried many different ways to kind of summarize the storylines for you guys, and I got tangled every single time. This is what I've come up with. It's not perfect, but hopefully it helps you wrap your head around it all. So what I did in the end was try to group the storylines into general categories. So there's a political story. There's an election going on and there's a campaign organizer who's trying to get a bunch of country music stars to perform at a nationally syndicated uh, TV rally in support of Hal Philip Walker, who is the candidate for the replacement party. Then there's a whole cluster of fame and fortune stories. They're uh, all around music, mostly country, but then there's folk rock as well. Barbara Jean is the queen of country, and Haven Hamilton is the king of country. There are some characters who are enamored with Barbara Jean. Others want to knock her from her pedestal, and others simply want to profit from her. There's a folk rock trio that's up and coming. They have one album, and it's been a hit, but now they're breaking up. There's a woman who dreams of making it big. She wants to be as famous as Barbara Jean, but she cannot sing. In fact, she is quite tone deaf. Her story is heartbreaking, I have to say. There's a groupie masquerading as a BBC journalist. And really all she wants to do is just have sex with as many musicians as she can. 
Uh, there's a bunch of other music or fame-related storylines, but I mean, you get the picture. Then there's a cluster of family stories. There's a choir singer who's having an affair. There's a young wife who wants to make it big in Nashville, but her husband doesn't support her. And there's a man whose wife is dying and he wants his niece to see her aunt one last time. And then there are some stories that are kind of a commentary on society. Uh, for example, there's a soldier who's just returned from war. And then there's a gunman who um, shoots Barbara Jean in the end. We did tell you there were spoiler alerts. But you, you kind of know someone's getting shot. That That's not a huge surprise when you see this guy with his violin case. Now, there should be one central theme unifying all these storylines. But honestly, I couldn't figure out what it was. I'd need a, a, a whole month of doing nothing else but analyzing Nashville. The blurb for the movie suggests that love is the unifying theme. And I totally can see that because you've got obsession love stories in there, marriage love stories, stories of unrequited love and courtship love stories. There's a lot of them in there. But I think there's more to it than that. I think that's just letting the film off too easy or, or maybe doing the film a disservice. I think it's probably a better way to put it. This is, as we've said, a big, big, big film. So who are all of these characters? And yes, I am going to list them because I really do want you to get a sense of the scope of this movie and what is actually possible with a multi-plot story. So here are the 22 main characters as I see them. You've got Hal Philip Walker from The Replacement Party, and he is never seen. He's heard, he's not seen. You have John Triplett, who is the campaign organizer, and he's arrived in Nashville from California. Delbert Reese is uh, Haven Hamilton's attorney. He's Linnea's husband, and he's involved with the campaign. Then you have Haven Hamilton. He's the king of country, as I mentioned. Uh, then there's Pearl Hamilton, who I think is his mistress. I think his wife is in Paris, or maybe she's his wife. I was getting confused. His son is Buddy Hamilton. Then you've got Opal. She's the BBC journalist, quote unquote journalist. You've got Tommy Brown and his wife. He is um, a country singer. He's kind of like Charlie Pride. That's kind of what I thought. Then you've got Barbara Jean, who's the queen of country. Her husband, Barnett, is also her manager. So thanks Celine Dion and the late Renee Charles. Um, Sulin Gay is the singer who cannot sing. <laughs> the, that, that is a really, truly heartbreaking storyline. I, I, my heart broke for her. It's really easy to kind of laugh at her initially because she's the only one who doesn't understand that she can't sing. But wow, wow, it's heartbreaking. Then you have her friend and colleague, Wade, then you have the man whose wife is dying and he wants his niece to see her. Uh, his name is Mr. Green. His niece is Martha, who also goes by L.A. Joan. Then you have the trio, Tom, Bill, and Mary. Tom is Mary's lover and Linnea's lover. Bill is Mary's husband. <laughs> it gets, see, it gets, it's all just so tangly. Then you have their chauffeur who is Norman, and he's also a musician or musician wannabe. Connie White is a, a star. She's a country singer. She's sort of coming up behind Barbara Jean. She can't actually sing very well at all, but she is beautiful. Uh, Barbara Jean has a beautiful, beautiful voice. Uh, but Connie White is starting to steal her thunder. Then you've got the, um, the serviceman who's just referred to as Sarge, 
I think he's just referred to as Sarge. That's all I picked up. Then you have a guy named Kenny. He's the gunman. And then you have a woman by the name of Jill Brown, who also goes by Albuquerque. And she's kind of like the, the Dolly Parton character when Dolly first arrived in Nashville, or I should say that not actually Dolly Parton, but because Dolly is a very smart, astute businesswoman, but the packaging of Dolly, how, how, how about that? The packaging of Dolly when she first arrived in Nashville, then you have these two periphery characters. Uh, there's a, a reporter from WNGE, which to me is whinge, which made me laugh. And then there's this unnamed character played by Jeff Goldblum. I don't know what he was doing. He just sort of, he's on this like easy rider type of motorcycle and he sort of drives into a scene and picks up one of the women and drives out of a scene and he shows up in weird places and I'd have to do more research. I I, I don't know what was going on there. <laughs> so <laughs> with all of these storylines and all of these characters, how on earth does Robert Altman make it work? How does it stick together? Well, I saw two strategies that were used repeatedly, and they worked really well. First, Altman created a series of what I call ballroom scenes. Now, there weren't actually any literal ballrooms, but they served the same function as the ballroom scenes in Regency Romance. So if you think of Pride and Prejudice and the ballroom scenes, what do they do? They bring everybody together and get them all in each other's faces. So ballroom scenes, in other words, are any scene, sort of a social thing, that brings a large group of characters together and gives them an opportunity to interact. So the types of quote-unquote ballroom scenes that are in Nashville are, you have the, the recording studio, which is one building, but then you have all the different studios within the building and we get to see the musicians doing their job. There's an airport. Then there's the airport cafeteria. There is, of course, the Grand Ole Opry. There's the Speedway. There's Haven Hamilton's party, which is like an outdoor barbecue type of thing. There's, it's not quite a montage, but there's a, the religion is a big uh, theme or a big topic in this movie. So we have characters who are Catholic, some characters who are Baptist. So we have this three scene, you know, mini montage, I guess, where you see the Catholic characters at mass, you see the Baptist characters at church, and then it moves to the chapel in the hospital because Barbara Jean is in the hospital and there are other characters who are visiting other friends and family in the hospital and they're all in that chapel. And then of course the movie ends on the political rally, uh, which is an outdoor spectacle. The second thing that Altman does is create very close relationships between the characters. So a character might have his own storyline, but then he's a supporting character in someone else's storyline. So just one example is the character of Delbert Reese. So Del is Haven's, Haven Hamilton's lawyer. He's married to Linnea, and Linnea is the choir singer who's having an affair. And he's assisting Triplet with Walker's campaign events, which puts him in contact with Barbara Jean and her husband Barnett. It puts him in the hospital when Barbara Jean is there, and it allows him to interact with all kinds of characters. So the idea of creating a cast with close relationships is an important one in all forms of stories. But I think Robert Altman has just taken this concept and turned it up to 11. Okay. Huh. 
Even with all of that, that's still a really high level view of multi-plot stories. But I think you get the idea. If you've never seen Nashville, I really urge you to go and watch it just to get an idea of what is possible. And if you think you might be writing a multi-plot story, you definitely have to watch it. All right, Melanie, that's enough out of me. What do you have this week? Well, it was uh, Nashville was very unexpected for me this week and it didn't resonate at all um, because when I watched the movie, I didn't feel like I had any connection with the characters just because of the amount of time that they spent on, on the screen. And while I, you made a point about trying to be objective, I think when I'm studying resonance, it's something that does need to be subjective because I think it's something that you feel in a movie. But the objectivity comes at looking at, well, the what, the how and where it comes from. So this week I did focus a lot on me as the viewer because it, it was such a struggle for me to understand what was going on in the movie. Um, and I did not think it had any sense of purpose and nor did I understand why this story was being told. But I am not the target audience and I think that this is a really important point. And I mentioned just before that uh, in order to try and find a way into the story, I did a lot of research or I went to look for articles that would help me understand. Now, I did stumble across the following description by Roger Ebert, and he did an analysis of Nashville. And I think this really aptly explains why I'm not the target audience. And Roger says, and I quote, this is a film about America it deals with our myths, our hungers, our ambitions and our sense of self. It knows how we talk and how we behave and it doesn't flatter us but it does love us, end quote. Now at the risk of sounding like Captain Obvious, um, I am not the us in this summary or his summary. I can see how the scriptwriter and the director were creating a parody of US society at the time. And But at the same time, knowing that Nashville was a parody didn't always help me either. I still didn't find much of it funny, but again, I'm not the audience. Now, I can understand on an intellectual level what the movie was trying to do, but this also doesn't resemble any of my experiences or my cultural background. And when I come back to look at Dave Farland's description of resonance, this is what he would call life resonance. So this movie did not resemble or, or tap into any of my personal life experience. Again, I'm not the target audience. But as a writer, when you're looking to create resonance in your story, knowing your audience is paramount. If you know your audience you will be able to create characters and situations that resemble their lives and experiences and it will resonate as they read. And I think Nashville really drew this out for me this week, um, not as an example of it resonating with me but it's trying to understand why it didn't. Now it's worth noting that most of the movies that we watch on the podcast are made in the U.S., and I've been able to identify the features of resonance in those films. 
there have been themes, motifs, characters and story types in the other movies that are universal or they are universal enough for me to identify how the resonance is created. Now, having said that, I did recognise a few things in this movie, but recognition is not the same as resonance. So resonance creates an emotional response to the various elements that make up a story. And resonance can be repeated like a refrain throughout a story, but it can also draw on elements of other stories that have gone before it. Now, if a reader doesn't have some sort of emotional connection to the story, and I mean with any aspect of the story, then they won't experience the emotions they have felt before and are seeking to recreate. Now, Farland calls this type of resonance emotional need. The overwhelming feeling that I experienced while watching this movie was that of being a voyeur, and I also felt a bit of culture shock. So there is a type of specificity in this movie that is unique to the time and the place that makes it difficult to understand for those who have not experienced the same time and place. The mini plot structure contributed to my feelings of observing but not being part of the story and that's because there wasn't time to situate myself in the film or identify with any of the characters and there were so many characters and I thought it was difficult to make a connection with any of them or learn to understand why they made certain decisions in the film. Now, the limited cause and effect patterns in the film, I thought were also disorientating. So in our own minds, we understand the cause and effect and decision-making process that gives us the continuity from our own perspective. So we understand as we walk through our lives why we're doing things and what happens. So it makes sense. And I think that relates back to a quote, Valerie, that you mentioned last week about why arc plot stories are so popular. It's because they actually resemble the way that we walk through our own lives. And I think that that's a really, another really important point. But the absence of a cause and effect narrative thread running through Nashville reduced my ability to derive meaning from the story as well. So without these two codes, there was not much about the type of story that I found familiar. I would classify the story structure under the banner of genre or what Farland identifies as genre when he talks about characteristics of resonance. But just because Nashville did not resonate for me doesn't mean that other people will have the same experience of this movie. Its success at the box office and Academy Awards indicates that there were quite a few people for whom the story resonated. I mentioned before that there were things in Nashville that I did recognise but they didn't necessarily resonate for me and here's what I mean when I say that. So I have been to Nashville and I have visited a lot of the places in the story although they did not look the same in 2019 compared to them when the movie was filmed in 1975. So there was a big difference in how they actually appeared 
but I could they resembled enough that I knew what they were, obviously, but it was it was like visiting a slightly different place. Now the music, so there's country and folk music, and most of the time I thought the songs sounded very similar. And I think despite all the jokes, country music did have a lot more variety in the 70s than the types of songs that were sung in the movie. And for me, the words in the songs didn't have much connection to the story and they didn't necessarily shed much light on what was going on. And then I thought, well, maybe their irrelevance was part of the point as well. However, you know, I do think that that movie sung at the end by Albuquerque and Valerie mentioned it before, It Don't Worry Me, was the one song that did create an internal resonance in the film and it had a dual meaning and I think you pointed that out quite well Val that it you know it should have been worrying people even though they were trying to sing it don't let these sorts of things worry you Um, and I thought that was that was a very clever use of that song in the particularly at the end of the movie you know there's the flags and the flags speak for themselves but again, as a resonating point, it's not my country's flag, right? And I don't feel any necessary emotion when I when I see it compared to my own countries. So the political campaign is also very obvious right from the start of the film, although that election campaign format is vastly different to what I'm familiar with. So there's little of that storyline that resonated for me at all as well. Ah, and now the violin case. I was actually quite fascinated by the violin case through the movie because for me it was synonymous with guns from the bootleg and the gangster period. So I recognised this as a case carrying a gun and was not surprised when it was pulled out and used. And thank goodness it was used because I would have been even more confused if if it wasn't. (laughs) This week, Nashville really provided me with some unexpected but good lessons in understanding your audience and writing a story that means something to them. And this week I was not the target audience for Nashville and the feelings of culture shock and voyeurism I experienced were not only due to the content but also because of the multi-pot structure chosen to tell this story. So a story doesn't have to have universal meaning, nor does it need to resonate with everyone. But when it does resonate with your target audience, you will be successful. All right, Valerie, what action steps do you have for us this week? Well, the action step is for anyone writing a multi-pot story. Identify and clearly articulate the idea that is holding your story together. It's the glue for your work, so you've got to be really clear about it. All right, so that wraps it up for this week. Join us again next week when we discuss aliens. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For access to writing templates and worksheets and more than 70 hours of training, Subscribe to Valerie's Inner Circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. And if you'd like to find more out about books to help you read like a writer, visit me on Facebook and Instagram under Melanie Hill Author 
or find out more about me at melaniehill.com.au. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm-hmm.